Welcome to episode number eight of Colorado TechCast. As, as one woman put it to me, and this is a woman who was top of her class at Stanford Business School, she said, society tells me now that I can either work for you or work for Starbucks. The combination of that remote thing and the flexible hours has enabled us to become very active in hiring people returning to the workforce after taking time off to raise kids or whatever. It's been a benefit to us, but it's also been a positive societal good. Hey, everybody. Trapper here with episode number eight of the Colorado TechCast, your best resource for one of the fastest growing tech markets in the country. Today, I'm speaking with Dave DuPont, CEO of TeamSnap. Founded in 2009 and headquartered in Boulder, TeamSnap has taken the organization of youth, recreation, and competitive sports into the 21st century for 20 million coaches, administrators, players, and families. Dave has more than 20 years of experience in information technology leadership positions. He was previously CEO of Sendrad, a venture-backed storage network company, and he also helped found Left Hand Networks, a Boulder-based networking company now owned by Hewlett Packard. Dave shares his insights on building a geographically distributed startup where everyone feels connected, how their product development process has enabled them to remain competitive in the market, and why you should invest in your business community before you ask for money. Now let's get started. I'm really interested in how you run a remote company. You know, you said that when you started this, it was with four people you'd never met in, uh, in Portland. I didn't know them before I engaged with them. I did meet them, and I think that's critical. These are guys where I cold called the company to find out what they were doing. And that led to a couple different meetings. And I really had a good impression of them. And actually, I was thinking I was looking into some other ventures at the same time and talking to some other people, completely different things. And I, I just like these guys. I think that we as humans have, if we listen to them, we've got you know, a good antenna. I just had a really good feeling about this group. And I liked what they'd accomplished. And my, my meetings with them only confirmed that. Now, I didn't have any history, though. You know, we formed the company when I had probably met them a total of, I don't know, three, four times face-to-face, had a lot of conversation, and that was that. To give you a feel for what did I like about these guys and what did I uh, judge to be better than some of the other situations I looked at, let me, let me take a step back first and tell you that I believe that when it comes to assessing a new business opportunity, it kind of comes down to three things, the team, the, the opportunity, the market, and the product or services that you're delivering to that, to that market. And by far the most important is the team. And so I was, as I looked at various business opportunities, I was thinking about the team and what I thought was really critical and, um, and you know, what, what I felt would make a good team for me because what, what works for me doesn't work necessarily for other people. And there were a couple of ingredients that I had in mind. And, and I wouldn't even say that I was completely conscious of them exactly, but, but I, I did kind of know what I was looking for. So one of those, one of those key attributes was, was openness. And what I mean by that is intellectual openness. So just openness to new ideas, different ways of doing things. And these guys are definitely that. And I was able to contrast that with, um, with some of the other opportunities, some of the other teams I was looking at, frankly. So this intellectual openness shows up in you know, different ways, but I'll give you an example. 
one way, and I've seen this and actually uh, been adversely affected by it, one way is in, and you've probably seen this in your career, tech chauvinism. You ever, see, you ever seen that where somebody thinks their technology is the greatest and, you know, they don't even see the advantages of other people's and um, they're just not open to other approaches. Yeah, the, the not invented here syndrome, right? Yeah, that's a, that's an example. You know, that's, yeah, exactly. The not invented here uh, or, you know, this, this technology just sucks. You know, it's got all these disadvantages and, and not able to see some of the advantages. So, yeah, not invented here is an aspect of that. So, um, so yeah, um, when we formed the company, I was thinking about those kinds of things and I was checking the boxes in a positive way about the folks that I didn't know before. When you set out to find this company, did you know that you wanted to go into the team sports management industry? Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually looked at a couple of industries at the same time, but I was intrigued by the team sports management thing. I actually was doing research. I don't know if I told you the story before, but I was doing research into um, internet companies and youth sports and all that. So I, I ended up having just you know, talking to lots of people. And part of my research involved calling up senior executives at internet companies that seem to be doing related things. I don't remember all the companies or people I called, but one of the guys I called was the chief operating officer for Open Table. So it's not a, that's not a sports company, but it is an internet software company. So I, I called him up to talk about just the internet in general and the kinds of ways to grow internet companies. And that guy is actually the one who said to me, you know, if you're thinking of doing this, you might want to look at this application that I found for my tennis team. And he said, it looks like it's just a couple of designers and I don't think it's really a business yet. So that was really what inspired me to, to cold call those designers. So what were they doing up until that point? They had a product, but it was, you know, very early stage. I think they had like 40,000 people using it or something like that. We've got 20 million now. And it was, you know, very, you know, just a glimmer of what it would eventually become. But, but it, you know, I liked the, actually, when I, uh, when he mentioned the name of, of the application, I, I typed, you know, search online and found that, uh, you know, I found the guys and it was, at the time, um, a product of a company called Sparkplug, which is a web design company. And when I looked at the website, I just got a good flavor for the people. I like the fact that, I mean, this was a very small firm, and in their marketing website, they were all dressed up in Star Wars costumes, nice. which I just thought that was cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was Photoshop, actually. But, but you get the idea. I think they were just very, you know, they, immediately they, they established themselves as, creative, somewhat irreverent people. So how do you take that, that information, you know, cold calling people and turn it into a, a company with 20 million users or a, a company whose product has 20 million users? Yeah. So it's a long road. Um, my original idea actually was, hmm, this is an interesting product. I like these guys. Maybe I can license the technology because I, you know, I wanted to do this and I, I'm not personally a developer. So I needed, I needed to get, I needed something to get rolling and, or somebody. And, uh, that was my original idea. And the more I talked to them, the more we just said, why don't we just uh, drop everything and do this? So 
took us six months to kind of work out the kinks, but that's mm-hmm. what we did. Um, and then once we, you know, once we, we, you know, I, I, I'd say we never actually made, and this is kind of interesting because it's a little different than most tech companies. We never made any major pivots after we got established. You know, I, I, I felt there was a major opportunity in team management and communication. These guys had developed the beginning of a solution to that issue. We didn't really like change. We just evolved. We certainly you know, gained a much better understanding of the market as we, as we went along. We started to develop features. Uh, one, one change was that in the beginning, we were more focused, and this just reflected the fact that all the designers were, uh, none of them had any kids, so they were mostly focused on adult teams. And after um, all of us were, were active uh, supporting customers, and we realized that we needed to, needed to make some modifications to the product to make it um, useful for for families, as opposed to just um, uh, couples or individuals without kids. So, um, you know, so we made some changes. Um, we kept on improving the product, kept growing. We started, we, we, five years ago, we um, expanded from the team product into clubs, leagues, and associations, and that went really well. The original product was a web application, and around 2010, I felt that we were a perfect candidate for a mobile application because people are often on their way to the game or trying to arrange things at a game or at a practice and that we were well positioned to offer functionality on a mobile platform that took off. We started with an iOS app, but with the success of the iOS app, we were able to justify creating an Android app. So it's, it's been a, well, let's, you know, let's try this. Let's try that. Oh, that's working pretty well. Let's put some money, money behind that. It's been that kind of phenomenon. So that's you know, just one step at a time um, with an eye open for opportunity and, and a strong uh, focus on what the customers wanted. That, that led us to where we are. And it'll, it'll underlie our success in the future as well. So you're probably at perfect timing for this because when you started the company in 2009, the iPhone had only been released like two years before. There wasn't a lot of competition in, in the yeah. smartphone scene. It hadn't yeah. been adopted yet. And the networks weren't up to speed. Right, right. Yeah, when we started building, it was a web application. Exactly. And now 95% of the use of TeamSnap is on mobile devices. So we've changed over the years to becoming a mobile platform. I think it's a perfect tool for the mobile device because... Mm-hmm. As you and I were talking before, so much of the game now is interactive. If you've got other people with mm-hmm. the application, you can mm-hmm. have somebody who's keeping track of the stats, who's keeping track yep. of the score. Yep. You also know who's on the roster, mm-hmm. just kind of distributing the, the work among the yep. supporters. Yep. Yeah, and the mobile, mobile just makes a lot of sense. Um, like, you know, so like a coach can be at the field for a game or at the gymnasium or whatever and can check to see, well, who said they're going to be here and of those people who's not here yet. So there are lots of things that people want to do when they're not at their house. And uh, the, mo- the mobile device or the mobile apps mm-hmm. are perfect for that. So, yeah, I, the way I said it in the early days to the team was, you know, I see these mobile apps for things like insurance, where, you know, you can buy insurance uh, through a mobile app or or whatever. And I said, I think we're actually particularly well suited for this. So 
we didn't have a lot of money at the time. So we, I think we ended up hiring a friend of one of the developers and for 10,000 bucks, we got the initial app, which <laughs> would be tough to pull off today, but that's, mm-hmm. that's what it cost us. Now, $10,000 then was a lot of money to us, uh, but um, it was, it was a winner from the word go. And what I think is pretty interesting is that at that time, there were some very large competitors and a whole, whole passel of other competitors out there. And we were the only guys who developed a mobile app. I thought it was kind of strange. It was kind of like, really? You guys don't see the opportunity? You know, good for us. Yeah, definitely had first mover advantage there. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, it's been, it's been things like that. We've been very pragmatic about a lot of things, but, but also not resting. So we're constantly testing ideas, and that doesn't just apply to the product. So one of the, one of the ideas you referred earlier to the fact that you know we're a remote company and that's kind of intriguing. Um, that it wasn't that we actually set out to be remote. It was more that when we started to get serious about forming a company, the question came up about so where are we going to be? And I knew that all the other people that were in that founding group were in Portland, Oregon. And I knew that they had been working together in a web design firm that itself was virtual. They, they all worked in the same general area, but there was no office. They all worked out of their houses. So I said, well, we're going to need a headquarters somewhere. But I propose we put the headquarters in Boulder, but we allow you guys to work from wherever you want to. And that's what we did. And that worked out pretty well. And then it turns out that the first engineer we hired was a contract guy who had been um, who moved to North Carolina. So he was, you know, we just let him work remote too. And then the second guy we hired was a, a DevOps guy, actually. He was managing our server. Yeah, he was moonlighting, um, you know, a couple hours a week taking care of our server. That guy, um, when we got to a, a big enough scale where we could hire more people, was really interested in joining us, and he was in San Antonio, Texas. So you know, we just kind of kept on growing that way, and it worked. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, in the early days, uh, all, of, all of us, and this is still a significant component of what we do, but we all worked on support, and it started to get, you know, as the, as the user base grew, it started to get to be a significant amount of work. We had one person that was almost 100% devoted to support, and she started eventually to get overwhelmed, even though we were helping her out. So she said, this woman has contacted me, one of our customers, through our support tickets, through our support email system, and she said that she really likes our product, and she wants to work part-time for us as a support agent, and she's willing to work for as little as five hours a week. So we're like, well... You know, that isn't going to cost a bunch. Let's try it out. And it works super well. So we hired some more people that way. And it turns out that we are really big uh, remote support um, hirers now to the extent that that first person we hired, she's running support for us today as a full-time job. And about, I think it's six or seven people, maybe probably more at this point that are on the team actually started off as part-time support people, but as their kids, you know, got active in school or, you know, grew up over time, they were able to, 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 excuse me, to devote more time to work and wanted to. And six or seven of our full-time people came through that route. 
so so we've we've inadvertently become this great company in terms of helping especially stay-at-home moms return to the workforce that uh, you know it's been a big deal for us uh, and and yet it was just pragmatic it was just a well why don't we try this out and when it worked we doubled down on it and I have I can give you scores of examples like that that's what I love about technology is you're really not constrained by geography anymore my entire team is remote and I've met these people two or three times you know, over a course of mm-hmm. three years. Um, so I think if yep. you do it right, it gives you the best of both worlds, but you've got to really work. Yep. You've got to really work to build that team cohesion and that culture. How do you guys, how have you guys done that? Uh, so a couple things. Um, I think it comes down to first, you got to hire the right people. So not everybody can work remote. Uh, it takes a high degree of initiative. It takes um, good communication skills. You could be great, but if you can't work with people over a distance, which requires communication, you're not going to be successful. Um, you have to be able to prioritize. Um, so once again, not everybody is suited for this kind of work. And we're uh, over the years, we've gotten good at identifying the characteristics of a good remote worker. The second is um, you have to communicate. I mean, communication is important in any organization. It's even more important when not everybody's in the same place because some of the unofficial communication does not happen as easily. So we, uh, we try to over-communicate to the extent we can. And then uh, the last thing is uh, you have to change some of your processes. So, for instance, a couple of years ago, we, we are heavy users of video conferencing. So we've got to have the tools in place. Uh, to to facilitate remote work, but um, we realized that when we were having a meeting and say four or five people were in the Boulder office and we had people that were remote participating in the video call, what we used to do is those four or five people would get together in one of our conference rooms and talk to the people in theory that were remote. And what ended up happening especially if I was involved, was the people in the conference room would kind of drown out the people that were, were remote. And also the people that were remote couldn't figure out sometimes who was talking. They couldn't really see the people that well. Uh, they couldn't follow completely what was going on. And they had trouble getting a word in edgewise. So what we decided to do was uh, to put in place the process where even if we're in the office, we log on to the conference call independently so that we're all at our computers. We've all got our little Brady Mm -hmm. bunch square (laughs) and a change like that is interesting. It puts everybody on an equal footing. It immediately changed the dynamics of meetings. So we put in place uh, a number of practices like that. Another thing is we, we encourage employees to get together at conferences and things like the developers might, uh, might all go off, together to go to a particular conference and spend some time there or um, sometimes a team working on a particular product uh, feature will show up in Boulder or, or somewhere else and just work to, you know, get an Airbnb house and all work together for a little bit. And we also pull together everyone in the company at what we call a company summit every six to nine months. So if you bring in all of your developers and they have nothing to do but code, that's like the best hackathon environment ever. 
Yeah, yeah. And they have a they make amazing progress, and uh, you know, and they and they enjoy each other and and have fun. You know, bring in pizza or, and beer or go out, and you know, it's it's always a blast, and it's well worth the investment from the company point of view. Let's talk a little bit about funding, like how you went from a team of five, you and four people. What cash infusions did you have to take and how did you decide who to work with to get the capital necessary to grow? Yeah. So um, we realized early on that this was a large market and that it was to be successful was going to was going to eventually require some significant investment. But we didn't start the company with the expectation that we were going to raise you know, the amount we've raised so far. Uh, so that's been another kind of example of our pragmatism. So even in the early days, we needed, we needed a little bit of money, but we, we were, we didn't need the amount of money that you would get from a VC. And also we felt that um, we were in a crowded market and it was going to be difficult to get uh, venture capital money anyway. So, um, so I put in some funds that I had, uh, that I received from a previous startup, uh, that I was, uh, where I'd been on the founding team and, um, got a little bit of money from, um, some Boulder area angel investors and also a couple of business school classmates. Um, so we, in effect, raised a couple of seed rounds and continued to grow and make progress. Then we had what I what I think of as a couple of A rounds, and it was really after five years of working that we got to a point where um, where the founder group uh, proposed to invest. Uh, I think that this was our uh, basically yeah this was at the beginning of 2014 7.5 million. So we didn't we didn't start off with the intent to raise a lot of money. We just got to a point where it was the obvious thing to do, and um, there were people with money willing to fund us at that point. So how much of that do you think is based on the the startup culture of Boulder? I mean, did you actively solicit the Foundry Group to invest, or did they were they just aware of you through activities in the community? We actually didn't in the beginning um, seek investment from them because. One of the things that the Foundry Group does quite well is they communicate their investment criteria. Hey, uh, you know, the, these are the themes under which we invest. We don't invest outside this, and um, you know, we're looking for companies of this size, et cetera. So it was pretty clear that Team Snap didn't quite fit with the Foundry Group in the early days. But um, I knew some of the guys there and had a lot of respect for them. So even though I didn't expect money from them. I did value their advice and perspective. And I also realized that any, um, any investor, any institutional investor from outside Colorado would likely seek their input about any software company based in Boulder. So in other words, you know, imagine some guy and this happened, you know, some guy on the, on the West coast is thinking of investing a VC on the West coast. And he'd be kind of an idiot if he he didn't call up the Foundry Group and say, "What do you guys think of these people?" Yeah. Um, So, so that's uh, you know. So I would meet with uh, the Foundry Group and and the other um, investors, the other VCs in the area as well, from time to time. And I never had an expectation that they would invest. It was more, "Here's what I'm up to now. Interested in your thoughts? I'm wrestling with this problem. What do you think?" Uh, To the Foundry guys, 
uh, group guys' credit, they were always um, super open. I especially got to know and vice versa, Jason Mendelssohn. And finally, the day arrived when he said, you know, you guys are making great progress. Can we take a look? Mm -hmm. So it's a very different than usual kind of situation. You're right. If if the foundry group isn't aware of you, you know, right next door to him in in town. Right. I think a VC would have been Larry. Yeah. So, I mean, you obviously did the right thing by kind of expanding your, your network to be elevated, to be noticed and to be seen and just to start building out those relationships before you really even needed the, the money. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that um, the, I, I prefer the word community because we, we are in this community and, and that implies a give and take. So the take is, you know, getting advice and such. Uh, but I made a point of also helping out, uh, you know, variety of people in the community um, associated, especially with the entrepreneurial ecosystem here. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was not a clever Dave's building his network is more, you know, these guys have something to, to give and maybe I can help them out somehow. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did and continue to invest time in that. Mm-hmm. I read Brad Phelps blog quite a bit. And one of the reoccurring themes in there is, is give first. I actually yeah. even emailed him a few years ago and I said, Hey, you know, I'm interested in technology, but I don't see myself fitting in any defined roles in a, in a startup. How can I get mm-hmm. involved? And uh, his, his one sentence response back was, you know, just show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's very true. It's great advice. It's simple advice. And it really puts the, the responsibility on the person to, um, you know, to do something with that. So that's, that's something that I've, that I've followed since. That was superb advice. Yeah. You know, Brad in particular played a, a big role in the early days for me. I, the previous role I had was as CEO of a Sequoia-funded uh, startup based on the West Coast. And this is in San Mateo. And the, um, the development team was in Tel Aviv. So I didn't see an advantage when the company took me on to, uh, to moving to the Bay Area because most of the company was in Israel anyway. So I commuted, uh, which worked fine. The company eventually consolidated back in Israel. But when I uh, left that and started looking for the next thing here in Colorado, I kind of felt like I, I didn't know anybody here mm-hmm. because for a few years I had been, you know, if you're traveling to Israel or California every week, you're not getting to know people too well in, in Boulder. So I, I um, actually had a meeting with Brad and I said, Brad, I'm just out of touch. You know, you know, I, what, what, what would you suggest? And he gave me the names of, I think, two or three people. And uh, one of them was Brad Bernthal, I remember. Another one was Robert Rich. And uh, I, I talked to them and um, offered to help out in ways. And um, they introduced me to other people. And that just kind of started the process of, in my case, reconnecting with the local community. Were you originally from Colorado or what's your backstory? The backstory is I've always been interested in technology. My dad... Um, was um, he started his career as a um, technician in the Air Force. And um, he ended up becoming an intelligence agent, but um, towards the latter part of his career in the Air Force. But, um, but that, I think, provided the initial spark that got me interested in electronics and technology in general. We lived, for instance, for a while in the Bay Area when you know, the space program was really hot and everything. I got really excited by all that stuff. And, and remain so, frankly. I, I've just always been intrigued by the way 
by the role technology can play in our lives. So um, I decided to get an engineering degree. Um, I um, graduated mm -hmm. with a degree in mechanical engineering, which I would call the jack of all trades engineer. Um, and uh, that kind of started my my career in in technology. I've pretty much worked with computers the entire time since graduating from uh, from college, except for the couple years that I was in business school. Um, the first three years I was working with computers used to collect and store information from surveys and oil wells. So I was you know, going out, either driving out with a crew and a truck with a bunch of computers and doing surveys and oil wells or, um, or doing the same thing, but on, a, on an installation or on a unit that was attached to an offshore rig. So I'd go out and do one of those two things. Mm -hmm. But we were using in those days de um, DEC, PDP-11s, an early mini computer. And, uh, and then after business school, I went to work for Hewlett Packard. I was in their PC and workstation businesses. So I was always super intrigued by what one could do with computers. And, you know, the power of computers, including the ones we can now wear on our, our wrist if we want, are, are you know, just phenomenal. Um, the, the, the range of applications and capabilities just continues to explode in a positive way. So, um, so I've always been super intrigued by that. And that's why when um, a few years ago my son was on a lacrosse team, I was just kind of amazed at how low-tech the the whole management and communication of the team was. I mean, it was paper checks being collected to pay for things. It was uh, phone trees to tell people about changes of schedule. And as I told my wife at the time, there is a better way to do this. <laughs> so that's what led me to start thinking about an internet company to address the problems I saw in the sports world. So how big is this industry or how big is the, the sports market? Um, in the United States, we think it's a $15 billion market overall for all sports. That's how much money, money people spend on sports. That includes the activities themselves, um, the money they spend on apparel and equipment, the, the sports management uh, part of that overall industry is a significant amount. And the the sports industry or the sports market is worldwide. It's not just the United States. Mm -hmm. So it's a big market. What do you think the future of, of Team Snap is in that ecosystem? So I tell my team we're going to grow up, down, and sideways. And what I mean by that is there's a lot more we can do at even the team level, more capabilities. We're going to be adding video highlight to uh, our Team Snap Live product. So people, spectators in the game can, can provide video highlights to those that are not at the game. We, uh, we've got a whole range of new features we'll be providing at, the, at that team level. And um, also, that's, so that's the horizontal. We have the opportunity to expand dramatically outside North America. We are in, I think it's 177 countries now, but our penetration is highest in the United States and Canada. So we've got lots of growth opportunities outside the U.S. That's still what I think of as horizontal. We have introduced services for larger organizations that are integrated with our team functions. So architecture allows us to provide services to clubs, leagues, 
associations, tournaments that are linked to our team database. So that increases the utility of what we're doing for of what we provide for mm-hmm. people on teams, but also gets us into new markets. So to give you an example, um, if you're, if you're um, collecting money as a club or a league and the information about um, new players in a registration process, we provide the capability to do that, but also to take the information and then allow that, that club level administrator to organize people into teams that are then reflected in individual um, team snap instances for a particular team. So when you're a coach or a manager and in an organization, a club, league, association, whatever, that's using TeamSnap, when you first open up your app for your team, all the team members are already there. You don't have to enter in them. So that's, that's an example of increasing the value for people on the team and at the same time providing mm-hmm. services for the club or league that needs to register people and collect information. Another example would be um, league-level scheduling. You know, typically, games are scheduled by leagues, not by the teams themselves. And we provide the capability, first of all, for leagues of scheduling um, a bunch of games uh, between teams based on um, the teams themselves, their location, maybe how often you want each team to play the other team, who should be the home team, the the available field, stuff like that. So that's a service that we're providing the club or the league. That game schedule, however, becomes part of the database that the teams have access to. And for instance, if for whatever reason, let's say this coming Saturday's games are rained out or something, in TeamSnap, all you need to do is rerun that, that league scheduling tool, or if it's just a couple games, just manually change the games, and automatically all the people on the teams are notified, and their individual TeamSnap apps reflect the change. You don't have to notify anybody in the manual way that's been done in the past. So we'll continue to, to build on those larger organization capabilities. And then as um, that's the up part, And the down is as uh, wearable devices become more ubiquitous, we will integrate them into the team team app experience. Every time I go to my kids' basketball games, I always see, you know, a few parents with their uh, their smartphones out and they're live streaming the game to whoever's watching them on on Periscope. Right? You don't you don't have to be uh, on site anymore. It's always better. Mm -hmm. As the technology has advanced, it's the applications have become so much more powerful. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we we actually have live streaming in beta now. Um, I think video highlights are going to be even more interesting because live streaming is is good, but the reality is there's a lot of dead time in amateur games in particular. Mm-hmm. It's not very interesting. So being able just to see the highlights, the last score, is uh, is very compelling. Mm-hmm. Instance, you know, last the plus or minus ten seconds associated with the last score or a big play. So anyway, those are the kinds of things we'll be doing. Um, you know, more features, international expansion, growth into larger organizations, and then lastly, integration of wearables. As you can hear, we've got a lot. We've got a lot to look forward to. It sounds like it. Yeah. So, what are the challenges that you're expecting to face as you as you grow the company from? 
20 million, 20 million users now. Yep. If, you, if you open it up internationally, it's such a wider base. What do you expect to run into? Well, as you grow your organizations, they, they change, right? Um, the dynamics inside an organization of 10 people are very different than inside an organization of 200 people. So I expect that, um, you know, we'll have to make modifications to the way we operate to ensure that we get the same level of ownership and commitment that we do now. I mean, what happens a lot, and in, in you probably lived through this yourself, Trapper, what happens when companies get big is individuals start to get a little divorced from, from reality. You know, they're focused on their little thing and they, they're not seeing the big picture. And, you know, sometimes it's very common for people not to feel real commitment. Um, we don't want to lose the commitment we have. It's a, it's a major, both to our customers, to the company, to each other. So I think we're going to have to make some organizational adjustments to account for that. That's going to be hard. Um, we have a fantastic culture. We've been, we've been on uh, Outside Magazine's uh, Best Companies to Work For list a couple of times. We were number six um, in, in America on the last list. Keeping, keeping those great cultural elements as the company grows, that's, that's probably the most significant challenge we have. The, uh, as I'm thinking about, the other challenge that occurs is in the early days, you're the, you know, you're the scrapper. You're the, the one who's making things happen and the big competitors don't pay attention to you because you're too small. Uh, but one of, the, one of the phenomena that occurs as you get bigger and now we're the market leader is um, the good news is you're the market leader. The bad news is you've got a target on your back for everybody that's not. So that's part of, you know, that's just a natural challenge. I'm, I'm delighted that we have that challenge, but, but it is a challenge. We're the guys that we're the guys at the, at the, we're the king of the hill. Did you ever, ever play that when you were a kid? Yeah. Everybody wants to knock off the king of the hill. Yep. So you, as you continue to innovate, I think that's going to be, I mean, that's going to be the, the real driving factor for your success. I know that you were awarded the, or you were named the 2016 Biz West IQ Award, which is the innovation quotient. So that's, uh, I think that speaks yep. volumes to, uh, yep. to what you've accomplished so far. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, as I tell the team, we still have time to screw it up, but I'm, I'm proud of what we've accomplished to date. So what advice would you have for, uh, for someone who sees an opportunity similar to what you saw where, you know, we're in the 2010s and I still have to use pen and paper to keep track of you know, who's, who's going to bring what to sporting events. And if somebody sees an opportunity out there, but they're not sure quite how to solve it yet, what advice would you have for them? Well, I'd have this advice even if they think they've solved it. And that is nobody does it alone. So. Yeah, kind of the advice you got from Brad in a way, dive in there, talk to lots of people, get reactions to what you're doing, seek help, look for people who want to help you actually establish a company. But really it comes down to nobody does it alone. I mean, they recognize you're going to need help. I'm, I'm some, I'm, to dive into a particular aspect of this, I'm always surprised by people I run into from time to time who have, you know, who have identified a market need think they have a solution and they closet themselves for a year or more in developing the solution and they haven't talked to anybody. That's crazy. You want to, you want to talk to potential customers. You want to talk to people who know something about the part of the market that you're trying to address. You want to maybe get some ideas about the technology. You want to get some thoughts about potential competition or existing competition. So that, you know, that 
outward focus and uh, that acknowledgement of um, the capabilities that other, other people can bring to the party, that is a huge deal. It's a force multiplier. That's really great advice. Yep. Don't, don't try to go at it alone. No, um, no. Don't, don't innovate in a closet and continue to iterate, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, don't do it in a closet is, is a, a good way to summarize things. And uh, I mean, you can really waste a lot of time and you'll, you'll probably get it wrong. The, the likelihood you'll get it right, you'll, you'll come up with something that actually will work is pretty limited. Dave, I want to thank you for coming on to Colorado TechCast and telling your story, how you started TeamSnap. I think you had a lot of really good examples and, and definitely really good advice for entrepreneurs out there, both for creating a culture of remote workers who still feel connected and still feel on the same platform as everybody else, as well as advice on how to build a product and how to uh, how to seek help and seek advice and uh, and not going on your own. I think that's I think that's critical there. Thanks, Trapper. It's been it's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate the questions. It's always interesting to think about. You forced me to think about some of the things that got us to where we are. It's always enjoyable. So thanks very much for taking the time.